Are you a swellian or a swelliette who has spawned psyched as swelly groms? Are you looking for a skits holiday for you and your spawn to enjoy this swelly winter? Well, Safari Surf Camp at Crescent Head on the mid-north coast of New South Wales is offering two performance surf coaching stays in July designed specifically to improve all aspects of your gremlin surfing. From positioning and executing turns to navigating the lineup and more. All meals at a comma included, and get this, one parent stays free. <laughs> Mad! The camps run from July 1st to 4th and from July 7th to 10th and is hosted and supported by Surf Culture Bondi, Javianas and Safaris Crescent Head. For inquiries and details, email surf at safaris.com or find the crew online or on Instagram, safaris underscore crescent underscore head. Sick winter shred trip for you and the little corn lord. Get on it. ATS Live is brought to you by Billabong, the surf company that's been bringing you the bong cron since 1973. Trusted reprobate heathen core lords responsible for Oki's 1990 lime green wet shorts to get in behind the only live podcast experience that ends in corn drag races down the aisle of Australia's seediest pubs. Support the crew who support ATS Live. If you haven't scored your rubber for this winter, jump on the Billabong Graphene 100% recycled technology, keeping your sensitive bits warm and flexy in the icy orbs of mortal conequence. Long live the orchie, long live the bomb. I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm just thinking about having won the world title and, and hopefully trying to win another one someday. You just drop in and just smack the lip. Drop down. Well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did battle some humongous waves. Oh, that's the paper thing? Oh, surf looks good, Alvin. Not bad. Ain't that swell? Yeah, shredheads, waxheads, kooks, and barnies. Welcome to Ain't That Swell live from the Stain Hotel. Come one, come all, come stain. What a puppet is born, what a venue it is. It's great to be here, and what a day it is to be alive and Australian in this year. Proud People's Republic of fucking Elbow. Yeah. 
He's gone, mate. Scummo is toast. Fuck off, Scummo. We've got a gut full of you, mate. You let it down the team. I'm your host, the two-time Gold Cone Peace Award-winning surf journalist, Scum Valley's finest himself, the punch-drunk pikey, the sultan of psilocybin, the maestro of micro-dosing. Yeah. Let's hear it, folks. Swimming! And I'm joined here, as always, by my loyal co-host and friend, frontman of the Goons of Doom, former editor of Surfing World magazine, Tracks magazine, Waves magazine, Vaughn Rinsed Gone, Deadly. Hi. Good to see you, folks. And a big thanks to the Stone Hotel for relieving five of my lifetime bands for letting me come back here again tonight. Good to be back, Smithy. Good to be back. It's good to be living in a world that cares about people again, mate. Oh, isn't it what, Vaughn? I mean, fucking waking up this morning to a Hauso Butler from Camperdown, the son of a single mother, Prime Minister of this country, leader of this proud nation. What a fucking moment it was. I cried, it was mental. And, uh, man, it's special for me. You know, I am also the son of a single mother who grew up for a period in uh, Camperdown, renting, you know, I've lived in public housing, I've lived in women's refuges on the run from domestic violence and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I've spent fucking 20 years getting just booted around the bottom of the class system. So, uh, you know, it's good to see one of us still, uh, you know, able to reach the top of the pops in this country. It gives me hope that, uh, you know, Australia is what I was raised to believe it was, which is a place of community, solidarity, uh, you know, a place where fucking actions speak louder than words and where if you're some shirking cunt and the joint's on fire and you bail to Hawaii, you fucking get assholed quicker than anything. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you're lucky if you don't get a broke jaw on the way out, so fuck off, scummo, and, uh, mate, tell your story walking, your dog. Your dog. Mate, uh, I think another thing that, uh, is really frothing me out is just how many women, strong, independent women, just cleaned out the government, and it makes sense, and, uh, it's fitting that we're here at Manly, because, you know, it was just around the corner that Isabel Latham rode ways with the Duke for the first time, Phyllis O'Donnell was crowned the first ever world champion Maybe half an hour, maybe an hour before midget. Throwing folks onto the rocks. Mate, dropped in on it. This place is just, you know, this is the place where surfing began, not just like for women surfing, but in Australia, big time. The contributions of women here. Uh, of course, you go to later on Pam Burridge, Lane Beachley, who's here tonight. <laughs> Cannot wait to get her up. Tyler Wright, you know, uh, she burst onto the scene here by destroying Steph Gilmore, who was world champ at the time, and then. You know, won that event. Years 14 old. years old, never wow. been topped. And Laura Anavo, I mean, the list goes on. There's been so many magic performances out here. So give it up for the girls, give it up for the ladies, give it up for the women. Because uh, the swelling queens are delivering, Smithy. Mate, and let's not forget that this giant route that's come about, uh, it all began here in this suburb with the booting of Tony Abbott with uh, the original swelling queen, Zali Stegel. Um, and, you know, I was thinking, fucking, like, I've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? Staunch, independent women sticking it to the man. And I'm like, fuck, the 80s and 90s pro tour. Uh, you know, your Jodie Coopers, Pauline Menses, Lane Beachley. Uh, I feel like, you know, that's where we kind of got our North Star as a country from those girls. And uh, fuck, what a moment, Vaughn. Yeah, it's amazing, mate. A big round of applause to everyone who got rid of those fucking animals. We're so stoked. Well, Smithy, this is our last show of the Children of the Corn Tour. It's been a huge one. Mate, I'm pretty fucking ruined. But I've got one last Arvo in me. I want all you guys to come with. We've got the sickest panel ever. Like, we actually do have the greatest female 
human being ever from this town, Lane Beachley, from Australia, on the global stage. You are the queen. We love you so much. But we've also got the 2012 world champ who has just recently been inducted into the Surfing Hall of Fame. What? Joel yeah. Parkinson and Giao Shambino Chianca, the madman, who has just been an absolute revelation since he uh, got on tour. He fell off. It's a fucking disgrace to me. I don't know what's wrong with the system. But the, the surfing that guy did, wow, 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 wow. So should we go? Lano, Paco, Albo, Chaco, Lano, Albo. I can't do it. We had this big plan to get a big chant going, I can't even remember the chant. That's how cooked I am. Well, let's get Paco up here. Let's do it. And now, fighting out of Coolangada. He's the former world champion, son of a bricklayer turned beer baron. Nephew of the great, steep, deep Daryl Parkinson. He set the standard for stylish surfing throughout the 2000s. Standing six feet tall, 80 kilograms, five feet and three inches of pure nostril, Joe Leslie. He's the 2012 Pipeline Master, he's the surfer, surfer too. He's a sunny coast coolie legend, he's trained to Timbuktu. When it comes to professional surfing, he's our swellian guru. If anyone knows, you know who knows? Paco's knows, Paco's knows. Ah, oh, Parker, welcome back to Ain't That Swell, mate. Oh, that got me sight. Ah, that was amazing. You should make a fucking surf movie. <laughs> I've made a couple, mate. I know. Get your greasy wig back on. We're ready to go. <laughs> Augusta people be. <laughs> hey, mate, um, congratulations, Hall of Fame. But uh, before we get to that, is it true that you won a Harley Davidson yesterday? Oh, my missus won a Harley Davidson in a raffle yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, oh, mate, I don't know anyone, I don't know anything about Harley David, one percenter. So you uh, Alex Chumpy Pullen, the legendary snowboarder, RIP, but uh, there was a, a big foundation fundraiser for him the other night and uh, there was a Harley Davidson up for grabs and Monique Parkinson won it and we actually have a shot of Parko riding it on the way here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> You're about the 50th person. I got that many mates said to me like Tom Cruise riding it and all this stuff. <laughs> Is there some kind of uh, divine intervention at play here? Because you actually got uh, you got you got robbed of a car just recently. It was Monique's car too, right? Yeah, she lost a car, won a Harley. So. Um, and what was the story there? Can you, uh, if you haven't heard it, because uh, we haven't actually had you on here since the floods. I don't think. Nah, nah, haven't been on for. I think my last show was in. Um, might have been Newcastle. Um, yeah, fuck, that was ages ago. Yeah, it was ages ago. I mean, we talk about actions speaking louder than words. I don't think uh, anyone has epitomised that more than you. During the floods, man, you know, you're at home, just another fucking spot on the couch with your, your, <laughs> your can of Bolter in one hand, flicking between a, a 1,000 in uh, Taiwan and a, the rugby league, I guess, and uh, you get the call that comes through and says the whole tweed's going underwater. And what happens next? Um, no, actually, I was hungover as hell. The... <laughs> Um, I'd had a couple of tins the night before and then um, 
my my um, good mate of my wife's mum was sitting on the um, her kitchen bench, and she rang, and I said, you know what, I'll just I'll just race down and grab her, and then I never made it, never even got to her. I just got she was at Moolenbar, I couldn't get there. And, then the whole town of Tobolgan was completely flooded and had no no SES or no help and um, yeah I just happened to be just at the time go I went in with another mate of mine, Arpy, um, who's a champion bloke and he wait we just went into full f a rescue flight or fight uh, mode and um, I was hoping to be on the couch you know hoping I'd be home by you know I left at eleven in the day and I was hoping to be home about two and I got home at two in the morning and. That was, yeah. So you're out there on a jet ski in rising floodwaters, uh, you know, catastrophic flooding, the, the biggest flood that we've ever had. Um, you know, you, you talk us through it. Like, how dangerous was it? I understand, you know, you're riding across fallen power lines, there's trees, there's dead cows, there's live cows. Yeah, they, um, it was pretty hectic. Um, we went through quite a pretty emotional thing. It was probably, um, like, uh, definitely a few of us had to go and get some help after it and I guess decompress it all. Um, yeah, I guess at the night, the, f the first house I got to, it's the only way I can explain, it was the first house that I got to and I was with Arpy, we checked this one house and it was a two-storey house and just the second storey was just visible kind of thing and I was like, oh, there's no one in there, no way. The next house, and there was sugar cane around, we get to the next house, it's just up the road a bit, maybe half a k up the road and I'm like, same thing, oh, there's no one going to be in this house. And I'm like, hello, screaming, hello, hello, hello. And I was like, and then Arpy was just in front of me and he was going down their driveway, which we didn't know was their driveway. It had four cars and underwater still. So we've gone over there, four cars. Didn't know there was cars there. And I'm like, no, nah, no one's home, Arpy. And just as I said that, the door opens and it's a four-year-old boy in a life jacket. And his mum's come running. She had the dog and the daughter, older daughter too. And I just was like, fuck, this is going to be unbelievable you know and, and then we just went house to house to house to house to house and um yeah just uh then i i'd actually sent my phone was about to die and i sent a message to on our little group chat between mick and a few of us and i said fuck i'm like it's just non-stop up here and and there wasn't much reception and i'm just so glad that video went through to them and uh it was me getting dragged down the water um past it to bogan pub which was completely under and then um, then Mikey Wright came actually. Mikey Wright was only a couple of hours behind me and Mikey is a weapon of a human. What he did, he was, he went up somewhere looking for someone on just some, like on a misto pinging phone and don't know and I don't know, he's, he's a weapon of a human, mate. He, he deserves like a, a medal. Or a cape. I feel like you should be getting around in a cape. Or a cape. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a mullet's it. kind, of a, kind of a hair cape, isn't it? It is, it is. It's a skull cape. Yeah, mate, um, the Tinny Army was, you know, unbelievable. Before anyone was waiting for the, you know, the, I guess the direction to come down from the leadership, people just went into full crisis mode. And uh, the Lennox boys were another one and, and all the crew who were out there on the skis. But uh, I was talking to Mick about it down in um, Torquay and he was saying that, you know, like at the end of it, yes, there was a lot of trauma, but there was also this renewed sense of community, this renewed sense of can-do and not having to sit around and wait for, like, direction. Yeah, for sure. It was almost like it, uh, the authority that was up there, because I, I had a couple of weird ones with, like, when Hippo came 
late hippo and brooko went into another little town chindra which was kind of closer to the thing I, and i hadn't even thought of that town i was further up the river and um the ses uh, when hippo got there was sitting in their tinnies and he was like what are you doing we've got to go my mates have told me to get up there it's hectic people need help and they went oh it's too dangerous you know we can't go up and i understand that like i'm i'm i'm, I'm a fan of the ses i think they do a great job but I thought, oh man, that you know, it's just those guys. Hippo didn't even question, you know, guys like that. He's just racing to, to people's houses, um, and I was like, from that moment on, I just thought that even those the authorities were just like, you know, them guys, the guys, were, all that tinny army were doing such a good job. Just let them go. I asked Mick this, and um, I've got to ask you too. Like, did did any surfers open the door, see you standing there? with a ski and just go, oh, fucking hell, it's bad enough already, mate. I don't need to get cooked in front of my own house. <laughs> yeah. uh, just shut the door and go, no, thanks. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, actually, I did. I had a couple. I had um, a, a funny one I had was, uh, you, you know DJ Stringer, the real estate agent? Dave Stringer? He's a real estate agent up our way anyway. He's got this beautiful house on the river and it was gone it was under um and i backed my ski up and i jammed my, my sled my rescue sled and i had to just let it go it was gone and um and so i backed right up onto his top deck of his house and he's got his wife four kids and a dog and i'm by myself and i go oh and he goes hold uh, mate got closer and goes fuck joel parkinson <laughs> and then he goes to his son and goes, uh, Let's get a photo. And I'm like, your fucking house is going under. Um, I've got to get you on this thing, mate. I'm going to get you out of here. Like, I don't know how high it's going to go. It's just coming up quick. Let's go. And I just said, well, you two are staying. So we'll get, I'll take the wife and your daughter. And then I to come back for his other two kids. And then I took him and his son at the end. And he, we we're just doing selfies on the phone. <laughs> Hang on, mate, I've got, a, I've got a, a Titans jersey downstairs. I'll just swim down and get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was like, mate, he's got this beautiful house. And anyway, I, I obviously, I couldn't, it was really hard to make out what was what. And anyway, I just see these two little silver aluminium things sticking up as I'm going out. And then I realised I was driving, it was his water slide. And I was driving over his whole pool. And I was like, he goes, you can have a swim if you want. <laughs> I went back. <laughs> But um, yeah, there was a couple of miraculous things that, uh, that I never kind of thought I'd probably do in my life. Um, there was at one point we were, we were pretty low on fuel and there was right on dark and there was another boat down there that, um, that was running low on fuel. It was kind of a ferry looking thing that had turned up, kind of probably like a, it had a little trap door, enough for maybe you'd put a, a motorbike on it. And one of the first houses or second houses I got to had this huge barn shed uh, like a, and it had, um, it had, uh, the guy told me, he goes, I had 120 litres of fuel dry at the top. And I was like, all right, mate, I'll come back and check on you. He was all right. He was in the top bunk on the second floor if it got bad. And so then I went for a couple of hours and then I went, Fuck, my fuel light is coming on and I'm not going to get home. And I went, I had to go get this fuel. So I drove all the way back up to this other house and got there and hopped on and just I made the guy, said, mate, I'll hold your shed. And the water was moving pretty quick. And I just went, mate, I've got to get in there and get out. And it was almost dark in the shed and I was just swimming through. And he's had this sick boat smashing against the roof of the shed. And I pulled out 
I got about four drums of this 20 litres of unleaded that was dry and that, that saved us. Like from that moment on, we was like, look, we've got a couple more hours in me and we'll keep going from there. <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about, you know. As a country, we've been through so much uh, between the, the bushfires and the floods. You know, I think we'll look back in 10 or 20 years' time as a real nation building, a real character building kind of period of our history and if you if you're not in check with that character if you're not willing to fucking you know get your hands dirty and rip in man there's there's fucking no place for you in this joint and definitely not in politics that's for sure but uh you know and but just to tie that in a neat bundle man you get home that night and your car's been knocked off hence uh <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't know I'd, we had arpy's kids too staying that night monica and the kids were all home and went to bed and and going home, my house was all open and car was gone, and I was just like, ah, oh, there's, you know, you do good in the world, and there's still, there's some, you know, anywhere you go, we're gonna have, I guess you can have bad people somewhere, but um, yeah, as long as we can do our good, right? That's all we can do. That's it, man. Oh, that's it. It's probably just, you know, sadly, like drug addiction and uh, these kinds of things tend to generate, you know, pretty nihilistic humans. But, um, I mean, karma has weird things to sort you out. You got a Harley, it's pro probably fucking worth three times uh, the amount of your wife's Camry or whatever uh, that she was driving. <laughs> and. Fuck, I can't ride it. <laughs> and then you get a fucking mental boat trip to Indo and score through the teeth. Oh, I did, actually. Yeah. Flushed out of uh, turd, the Bondi cigar riddled Tweed River into Indo and you're just getting blue stand tools. You're kidding me. Yeah, fuck. I just, uh, I just come home from my. Yeah, it felt great to get the passport stamped again and go on a surf trip. It was awesome. So, um, got some lucky waves too, and then in Indo, just until I got home yesterday, so it was fucking great. Mate, um, the Hall of Fame award, I mean, in, in light of everything that's happened in the last few years, it, it must be kind of trippy to go to a night like that and be honoured for your surfing. Uh, what did it mean to you? We had a good chat on the night, and you know, you're saying that you just love being out there, you still love surfing as much as you ever have. Um, yeah, how do you reflect on that? Yeah, um, it's, you know, it's a huge honour, as I said, that night. You know, it's not something you set out to be, you know. You set all these little targets to, you know, I want to win this comp or I want to win a world title one day and all those things when you grow up. But you don't ever think of the, that Hall of Fame. Um, and it was such an honour to, to get. Um, especially when I read through the list of people, you know, the, like, not just industry, you know, like Peter, not surfers, I mean industry as well, like Peter Troy's and all these amazing people. Um, you know, Lane herself in there too, and she sent me a really nice message, which I thanked her before, and I really did appreciate that. There was a few other Hall of Famers that sent messages, and it, it means a lot. I think it's a, a nice little honour list to be on and with good people. Mate, there's no question no question that you have delivered so much stoke to every single person in this room, every single Australian surfer in particular, but globally, man, the way that you approach waves, the way you read them, your understanding of, of the ocean, your timing, and of course, you know, just that beautiful style, that smooth, just synchronicity that you've got, man. It, if there was ever a surfer who was meant to be in the Hall of Fame, it's you, man. So, uh, big right, round of applause thanks, mate. for <laughs> Cheers, Vorno. Thanks, bro. I can't wait to, uh, you know, have you chipping in. Uh, you've been on the show a few times. We've gone through your life, but we're, we're really looking forward to having you kind of co-host with Lane and uh, our next guest. So let's get him up. Yeah, please. Brazilian surfing has always had its legends. Pararats and Gouveia. 
Ribas, Rosa, Roca, Hurdy, and Tavares. Lima, Doltro, Montero, and Neko the Tiger. But it wasn't until the storm went nuclear with Jaddy, Munoz, Mendez, and D'Souza that things started to heat up. Finally came the world champions, Medina, Piera, and world champs in waiting, Toledo and Western Webb. Now, an entirely new generation looks to take the storm to another level. Diego Dora, Sammy Pupo, and our next guest, the powerhouse performer who has scorched the salted meat from every heat he served on this year's championship tour. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joao Shambino Gianca! I don't think he's here. <laughs> I did say it, I don't think he's here. It's <laughs> so good. We've survived, what, four tours of our world champions, multiple, multiple, multiple times world champions, including Italo Ferreira, Jaddy Andre, first no-show. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, I speak blame. a little bit of Portuguese. I'm going to blame Bemi. <laughs> hey, uh, hopefully he does turn up. Bemi's on the program, but anyway, I reckon we just go straight to our next guest, eh? Fucking oath, more time with Bueno Leno. Yes. That's amazing. And now, direct from Manly Beach, world famous by way of the infamous boat shed, it is our great pleasure to introduce a global surfing icon with so much desire, so much determination, so much belief, so much heart, and so much grit. It's a wonder they haven't chucked the maroon and white jersey on her back and sent her into the front row for the mighty singles to rip a few elbows into JWH, Payne Haas, and Tavita Pangay Jr. to show them what it really means to give it your all. A seven-time world champ, six of which were won on the trot. She has won 29 CT events, a World Masters title, and has been the first female chair of Surfing Australia. Recognised by that old reptilian fossil, the Queen, with an order of Australia. Please be upstanding for the only royalty that we'll take a knee to. Her Majesty, the Swellian Queen, Lane Beachley! to Ain't That Swell, and uh, yeah, yeah, this is a great panel. How good that he turned up. You were going to be our first ever no-show, mate. I was freaking. <laughs> Did you see your intro video? Because we really tried extra hard on it. No, we didn't. Is that still working? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it. Can you play again? <laughs> you know what? We'll actually play it again when we sign off the night, because it's, oh, mate. <laughs> Wow. Man, talk us through it. Pipeline, the Pipe Masters, you were one of the standouts. You and Sammy Pupo just went fucking mad out there. Um, it was inspiring to watch, really. Uh, can you talk us through your memories of that event? Uh... 
Day one, it's 10 foot, perfect pipeline, a place you've been going to since you were 11 years old. Fuck, yeah. you must have been frothing. Yeah, pipeline was the best event of my whole life. I, I feel I always like had a special connection with that wave and I don't know, I just had so much fun during the heats. Uh, the first heat was like probably the best heat of my life until the round of 16 with John. Oh, then, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was really sick. Um, just like perfect waves all, all day long, and like the whole event was like really good. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to to put into words though. But yeah, I just had the best waves of my life like during the event. And yeah, that that one pretty much was the best wave of my life. And can you talk us through, I mean, the pig dog grab rail technique, it's been a, a favourite at Pipeline for, for decades or many years, but you've kind of got a, a new technique here. It's the, the, pink, <laughs> the pinky grab. The shark grab. Uh, grab. Yeah. You're, that, you're feeling that comfortable. You're like, oh, you know, I might need a little bit of extra stability here, but just a pinky's worth, you know? Yeah. It was just coming to, like, doing something different, you know? Variety is the uh, spice of life, isn't it, Vaughn? Uh, Indeed. Mm. Yeah, um, mate, far out. I mean, Pipeline is not a stranger to you. You've done a lot of time there over the years, obviously, with Vulcan and stuff as a sponsor. How hard is it to find your place in that lineup as a young guy going there in this day and age? Uh, you, you mean on the free surf? Yeah, but, just yeah. getting familiar with the wave at all. Yeah, uh, yeah it's definitely like challenge. Um, I had my brother a couple years ago. He he always like taught me to like to I don't know just feel comfortable in waves like this pipe or like whatever. And then I just like always loved and you know like for example like the wave that like I got in the heat with John the 987 was like a wave that like I probably saw so many times on, during the free surf but like would never catch it or like would never be on the right spot. But it was just like something that like I knew it would be perfect always. So yeah, it's just like I put like a lot of time there and I don't know, just just came like to play there like on that Oh <laughs> man, we're playing one of my all-time favorite waves, this off-the-wall double-up mutant. I don't know if there's ever been a fucking rolling eight-foot double-up in the history of this wave, but you managed to find one, man. Talk us through this wave, like when you saw it, just everything about it, when you saw it first capping uh, on a, one of the reefs out the back, I assume. Uh... <laughs> We've moved on from that one, Smitty. Oh, damn. Wow. What happens when you're watching footage like this? Is your mind going back to the vision, like you sitting <laughs> fucking eight foot back yeah. in that thing? I like the water angle, though. The water <laughs> angle can really, like, explain how gnarly the way it was, like, from the inside of the water, and I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to press pause in a second, because we're all just going to sit here, like, mind boggled by what you did out there, but... Man, you know, first comp of your career, CT, uh, it's pumping pipeline. You get the hardest guy you can possibly get. Like, how much of your plan was to serve it up to him? And did you think you could? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, John is just like, 
freaking good in everything that he does right now. And but you know, like <laughs> I I cannot like really explain how much I love waves like this. I I I can like do a list or I can stay here all night telling you like experience or like days at Sakurama that like I would score perfect waves on my own and I don't know I just feel so good I just felt so comfortable in that event I just like was frothing like about the waves and like just go there and, and I don't know to like just score you know like that, that was like perfect waves everywhere like every heat was like a perfect heat so I I would just like it cannot be that pot impossible to like win John, you know? Like <laughs> it cannot be that hard. And then like, yeah, yeah guess I can close up. What did you think, you guys, uh, Parco Lane? You know, watching this event, it, w it was a landmark event for a few different reasons. But the surf was so cooking. Like, is it hard? You know, knowing that you've been there and you're watching these heats, like, do you do you just instantly sort of put your rashy head on? Um, yeah, like, not really. I mean, <laughs> nah. I, I just, like, sit back and enjoy it, but, to watching it, but when, when your heat was on with John, I was just like, oh, this, this is going to be a good heat. Um, I knew you were good out there. I just didn't know you were that good out there. Um, and what, what a question I want to, like, you know, I guess, for me, I grew up on a point break, so, you know, J-Bay and the other points were always kind of my strength. Uh, in Brazil, you grew up in Sacarima, and there isn't a lot of waves like that in Sacarima. <laughs> so, how did you get so good on those waves? Was it your travelling, or...? Uh, yeah, I think it was, like, the last thing that I said. I just love stuff like this. I, I cannot, like, put into words. Like, I love barrel riding, or I love, like, conditions like this the one that I just had, and, like, Sakurama was always, like, a hard beach break, but it could get perfect. It wouldn't, like, get that perfect all day long offshore or eight-footers coming through, like, rolling, like, Banzai pipeline, but I would have some really sick waves to train, and I had a couple experienced... I guess with with my brother like traveling around like I I went to Chile a couple times. You went to Chile like when the C2 was there at Ica. It, it is a really sick wave, but never like really got any specific train to like be good at pipeline. I, I not even like think like I I think I I'm that good, but like I still can get better though. For sure, but yeah. Well, from a girl's point of view, I mean, we just had to watch it because we waited till it turned to shit, and then they send the girls out. So. <laughs> ah, classic line. <laughs> hey, I do want to know though. Like, were you fearful or, you know, fist down? Like, what was your attitude when you were watching this particular day? Were you like, all right, the boys have had their shot out there, girls? Like, do you yeah. have any sort of, um, I don't know, like a duty of care for them as as someone who has been a trailblazer? Or are you like, get out there? Yeah. Get out there and pack it. Come on, have a go, you girl. And I, I mean, it, it was, of course, there was a duty of care sending girls out in waves that they haven't surfed before. But 
But uh, you can learn, as he said, you can learn by just watching the wave. You know, you don't actually have to catch it to learn how to ride it. You can actually sit there and watch it and mind surf it all you want. And then it's, it's very different sitting on the beach and watching it versus sitting in the water and watching the guys catch the waves. So we, yeah, we rarely got the opportunity to surf it. And as you know, that lineup is so condensed. And it's really, it's quite impossible to catch a wave unless you've got someone out there blocking for you or cheering you on. So I went over the falls a lot more than I did catch a wave out there. Yeah, I mean, Luca, uh, Jao went there for the first time as an 11-year-old. Um, talk to us about your first few forays into the north shore of uh, Oahu Lane. And uh, I mean, I know you had, you had the likes of Jody Cooper and stuff flying the flag there and... But it, it, it come at a cost, didn't it? It was pretty intense for the, for the women back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started going, my dad, who's just arrived. Hey, Dad. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Absolute legend. <laughs> Neil Beachley. Uh, my dad took me to Hawaii um, for the first time on the North Shore uh, instead of going to schoolies. I finished my HSC and went over there in 1989. And it was when that 5A Billabong Pro event was on at Sunset Beach. And I remember sitting on the podium and I just fell in love with Sunset. I didn't realise it was such a hostile, threatening, intimidating environment for women. I just saw it as a, an amazing wave that I was in awe of. But when I started paddling out there in the 90s, yeah, it was pretty challenging. I mean, I've, I've been slapped around enough out here to let alone go and get slapped around at sunset. So uh, the guys were, were quite, they were quite intimidating. But uh, in saying that, we had plenty of women flying the flag. Pam Burridge, Pauline Mensah, Lynn Boyer, Margot Ogberg. There were women who had the courage to go out there and fight against an establishment that didn't make it very welcome for us to be out there. And, and what did you make of the performances in this event? I mean, it was, you know, as we say, the first time the women had really been sent out there for a start-to-finish comp. Um, yeah, were you impressed? Were, yeah. you, were you stoked on what you saw? I was really stoked on what I saw. I was stoked on the fact that the women got the opportunity to go and surf pipe. That's what I was most stoked on. And I was stoked to see how many women rose to the occasion and were able to conquer their fears and, and, uh, and, and really establish women surfing in an environment where we haven't really been welcomed before. So it was really cool. What did you think of the women out of pipe, Parker? I thought they were amazing. I thought they were really good. And I good answer. Because... <laughs> You know what I thought too was it was better because now even they have their line they have so it only gets better from here and, and that's like in any sport I can't wait for the next one to see how much improvement each year goes so that's going to be amazing. Yeah uh, mate before this event you know I'm sure that you were known in your home country and people could see you coming Thanks. but for the that's rest of the world. Stevie's got a billabong card if anyone wants a free yes, beer or, or actually yeah, Stevie, pull out the Billabong corporate Sorry, card. Yeah, and thanks for reminding me. A big thanks and a round of applause to Billabong, who have been back and ate that swell live since the first beginnings. Couldn't do it without him. And um, we've got prizes and everything, but, you know, Billabong are just fucking that core. I'm so stoked that they're back in these grassroots combos that obviously slide downhill pretty quickly the more booze it goes. <laughs> but uh, thanks very much to Billabong. Graphene Weddies for winter. Get into them. But, yeah, yeah I want to know, mate, um, you know... You came on a tour, you surfed this heat and just instantly the whole world had a new cult favourite surfer. Like, I think everyone saw what you did against John John and went, who the fuck is this guy? And then, mate, you backed it up again and again and by the time, you know, Bells had finished, everyone was thinking this guy is top ten, top five, you know. We all saw it. If, if you weren't one of the top five surfers of the year, then fucking I'll eat my beanie. Because... <laughs> And yet, you didn't qualify, and man, we saw how emotional that was for you. Um, 
it's, I don't really want to go into the whole, you know, is it fair or not, but how did you deal with that, you know, that news after surely feeling like you'd done some of the best surfing of your life to not make the tour? Uh, yeah, definitely not making the cut was like a really hard thing to me, but it's, it's just surfing, you know, it's just something that I, I will have to deal along the year. I felt really like not prepared at all to snapper and mainly just like couldn't like collect enough energy to put like into a great result. Um, no excuses though, I tried my best, like didn't surf that well, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just something that like I will have to digest and like I just want to go home like see my family again it has been so long like but it, it also has been like so incredible be here in Australia just like surfed like so many good waves and had so many fun heats to to remember and like rewatch it and yeah like I guess like surfing right now is just like on the highest level and it, it is difficult it is hard it, it will, I don't think it will get any easy, easier for for me like along along the year. But um, yeah, like I guess like if you can make once, you can make twice, and let's yeah, go. true. And did you feel, mate, the energy of uh, the Australian crowd? Because I, th I really do believe that this is a room and a, and a sort of surf culture that just loves fucking packing it having a crack, giving it your all, which you've done. Could you feel that support growing with every event that you surfed here? Totally, totally. Uh, after the heat with John at Pipe, Benny was with me at the house and like, he just kept t telling me like that I, I'm like Australian favorite surfer, but like, <laughs> I never like really believe it, but like, yeah, it's really sick to be here and like see everyone like just cheering for me. Thank yeah, you. it's true, man. You definitely got the attributes of, uh, you know, a, a really Australian surfer, like a classical, stylish power game, really stylish rail surfing, really good at packing the tube. You know, it's not uh, what we tend to associate with Brazilian surfers. Italo Ferreira, Gabriel Medina, really aerial savvy. Was that like a conscious decision to, to st stick on the rail, stay on the rail and, uh, you know, dedicate yourself to, to rail surfing and, and big tubes? Ah... <sighs> <laughs> Just hard questions here. Uh, Wait, mate, I'll, I'll make it uh, simple. Where's the full rotation alley-oops? Where's the full rotation air well, reverses? Well, yeah, I gave that part like to Matos already like right there. It's right there. Should He's I pretty know? fucking good at him, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, is. he is. He is. He tried to teach me something like that. He doesn't want me to get too good on it. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I do my best to do errors though. I, I, I feel I'm pretty good going right. <laughs> Not so going left, but yeah, I can, I can land some. I feel solid. Parker, what about happened to your game? Because uh, when we made Bicycle, <laughs> when we made Bicycle, you did two of the biggest airs ever seen ever up to that point in surfing. What happened to them? Fuck yeah, I had to conform to win a fucking world title, so. Oh. Uh, uh, there you go. And then I actually, no, I blew my ankle out and I was fucking, I was not gonna go. I mean, I'm strictly ground bound from now on, so let's just stay there. Clipped your wings. Hopefully. 
And Lane, what about the, you know, with women surfing right now, aerials are 100%. Yeah, you don't know. ask me about airs. I've never done one. Oh, no, 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 no. I've seen you crack a few, f- yeah. few flyways. As long Just, as you get the shot, that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> um, Got the shot, didn't land it. But, I mean, it's, it's obviously, uh, as well as, you know, getting to surf these sorts of waves, having that arsenal is going to be crucial to the future. And it seems to me that, you know, women surfing with this next generation, Katie Simmons, Molly Picklums, all that crew, they've got it on lock. Sierra Kerr. Oh, yeah, Sierra yeah. Kerr. Wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely the future of women surfing. It's great to see the women embracing it. Who, who's the Christian Fletcher of women surfing for airs, do you think? Oh. Sierra. Silvana Lima? Oh, no. Silvana Lima did a lot of frontside full Actually, ropes. Melanie Bartels. Bartels had a, had a serious air game. Yeah, but just none of the girls really backed Just, just without the full back skull head <laughs> tattoo on the back of her head. <laughs> Like Christian. Can't have it all, Vaughan. Yeah, Yeah, that was lacking. I feel, you know, Carissa Moore is really setting the benchmark when it comes to performance, both on the waves and above them too. She's just one of the most extraordinary athletes. Who? Serena Brooke. Serena Brooke could do a couple of airs. That's true, yeah. Hey, um, what's happening with women surfing in Brazil, mate, if you want another hard question? Uh, (laughs) You know, obviously the men's men's is just fucking going ballistic. Are we going to see that next wave on the back of the Brazilian storm uh, through women surfing as well? Yeah, I mean, like, hats off to the women's, like, today. Like, I love, I love watching, like, the CT and, like, the Challenge Series on women's part. And hats off to the women's, like, from USA, Australia, Europe, like, whatever. Like, they surf, like, really, really good. We don't have the same, like, volume of girls, like, gnarly goes like coming from Brazil but I still believe it you know like I I haven't like <clears throat> been doing like many events in Brazil or like many Q, QEs or like just to see like who got the like next like star like on it but I I've, I feel like we have like some solid Contenders, though, like I like to see. Do you, do you notice though that there's more, you know, young girls in the water when you're surfing, for example? Like, is there a little groundswell starting to build yeah, on the success yeah, totally, of what you guys have done? Totally, yeah. The the numbers of girls in Brazil, like the youngest ones, like are like definitely like a lot. And <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like optimistic though. Like, that's the only thing I can do there <laughs> for them right now. Yeah, I mean, we got the perfect person on the panel to uh, ask. You know, what does it take to forge a female surfing culture in a country that you know you, you got to make you got to blaze that trail yourself don't you no one's going to blaze it for you yeah absolutely it does take a couple of trailblazers and pioneers but it also takes the support of the men in the water and uh i was very fortunate that i grew up in mantown and uh mantown mantown wasn't really renowned for having supportive men in the water but uh, there were a couple that really believed in me and and that having the support of the guys support of an industry uh, support of a governing body, it, it literally comes down to support because if women feel that they belong there and they're accepted in that environment, then they'll, f- then they'll encourage more women to get involved. And so when sometimes I paddle out at my local and there's more women out there than guys and all the guys look at me and go, it's your fucking fault, there's all these girls out here. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm willing to take the blame because uh, I love seeing more women in the water than I do see guys. Yeah, and it literally comes down to that, doesn't it? It's like, you know, I guess there's a certain uh, kind of man who doesn't want to see women in the lineup because it just eats into his fucking wave quota. Oh, I tell you, this happened out at Burley on, on Tuesday morning. I was 
was out there with 11 or 12, um, between 9 to 14-year-old girls and we were filming an event for one of my um, new ambassador roles. And there was this old salty sea dog. He was probably around, I don't know how old he was. Let's say he was over 60. And, uh, 60 to 1,000. 60 yeah. to 1,000. And, and it was, the, lich, the waves were like one to two feet. It was really small and totally rippable. And I just kept cheering every one of them onto a wave. Go, go, go. And after, they were only out there for 20 minutes. And then he turned around and he looked at me and goes, stop fucking encouraging them. <laughs> um, yeah, it was Parker. <laughs> Fuck, mate. I am so good in the water with girls, so I give them all the waves. No, it was Mick. You used to hassle the shit out of me, Lane. You deserved it, Parker. <laughs> I was the matriarch. <laughs> you were. The pendulum has swung way the other way at the past, man. If you want to go out there, it's just uh, women longboarders just doing big loops around you. You can't even get on them. It's oh, just... man. And if you drop in on one, you come in, you, your car's been keyed, there's a, f <laughs> there's a frozen brick of tofu through your windscreen just sitting on the... <laughs> Sit on the front seat. Don't even get me started on the used tampons, mate. But uh... <laughs> too low. <laughs> well pumped. Too low. <laughs> but uh, take us back to uh... <laughs> take uh, us back to you know just starting surfing at Manly and uh, you know coming up here as an adolescent. Um, you know I imagine back in those days, far out, you would have been about one of one people in the lineup of, of sorry woman. women in the lineup in a you know 50 to 100 men. It's a metropolitan beach, busy as. Did you have to almost be a bit mad to to blaze a trail through? You know, surfing in those days as a woman? Yeah, I, you know, we're all products of the environment we grew up in. And if we've grown up in an environment where we feel supported and nurtured and accepted, then we automatically carry that. But uh, I grew up here at Manly where it is the most, I think, appropriately named beach in the world. I mean, it can be really, really hostile out there. And paddling up at North Stain was where I encountered the most challenges. You know, those are the guys that... Well, what's the challenge, though? Like, give us a bit of an actual okay, example so of, of what you'd have to deal with. Well, look, I started declaring to the world I was going to be a world champion surfer when I was 14. And they're like, shut the fuck up, Gidget. you got nothing. You're not going to make it. You're too young. You're too small. You're not strong enough. That wasn't your dad. That was... No. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I know you've got her back, Neil. Don't worry, yeah, mate. Yeah, Dad had my back. <laughs> but it was Reggae Ellis, wasn't it? It was Reggae Ellis, <laughs> yeah. And Doug Lees. <laughs> And Guy Leach. No, I started paddling up, up here at North Stain. I'm, f I'm 14 or 15 years of age and I'm obviously very confident enough to say I want to be world champion. And those guys would grab my leash and pull me off waves. They'd splash water in my face. They'd push me off my board. They'd drop in on me every day. They'd paddle up to me and go, you're a girl, get out of the water. And I'd look at them and go, what are you doing out here then? They didn't like the fact that I stood up and fought for what I believed in. But there was a couple of things that gave me the confidence to do that. Number one was I was really clear about what I wanted. And number two, I had what I referred to as like my dream team of guys. You know, there was five guys that were real, ba real bastards. But there was one or two that said, I believe in you, you've got what it takes. So I just hung with those guys and, and I surrounded myself with world champions. You know, I had Stuart Entwistle and Barton Lynch and um, Martin Potter and Tom Carroll and Robbie Bain, like all those guys became my mentors and teachers and the more I surrounded myself with them, the more I believed in myself because that, most of the time they believed in me more than I did. So that helped a lot. Do you remember any... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Excellent.
Uh, do you remember like a, a piece of advice or maybe a moment with one of those guys in particular uh, that sort of put the belief from just being you being enthusiastic and psyched into going, all right, yeah. You know, like a lot of people have that story where they just one moment sort of galvanises that dream. No. Okay, good. <laughs> no, there's a couple of moments. Like Stuart Entwistle taught me the, the pecking order. Like I didn't understand etiquette. I wasn't taught that there was a natural pecking order or etiquette in the water. I just thought if I could catch it, I'd go. And then I learnt that if you catch, if you drop in on people, you're not going to make friends. I wish you guys. You should teach that. Dingo that at Snapper. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Parker never actually learned that lesson. Oh fuck, there was that. I think the last time I surfed Snapper, I got dropped in on both you and Mick. So uh, you know, it Mick's the worst, mate. Mick's the worst out there yeah, for sure. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he, he hey, but, but there was one other thing that um, that. I never forget, I took off on a wave at Queenscliff and I heard, go, I heard someone go, woo! And one of the kids looked at me and went, Bart and Liz just cheered you on. I went, yes! I was so stoked to get that level of recognition and support of the champions that I just thought one day, if I'm ever a champion of the sport, I want to have that same level of impact and encouragement of young kids coming through, irrespective of their, of their um, ability. I just want them to know that if they've, if they've got that hunger, that desire, that work ethic, then you can make your dreams come true. Because I wasn't born with the ability to become a world champion. I was constantly reminded by my peers that I didn't have what it takes to be a world champion. My school teachers told me to lock up my surfboard because it was a distraction from my studies. But with the support of my, you know, my dream team and my work ethic and my desire, I made it happen because I was just not willing to ever give up on it. You're a legend. You are a dead set legend. <laughs> Fucking legend. Not only is she a legend, mate, let's not forget, she won five straight world titles. Six, mate. Six, mate. Six. Six. Really? Yeah. Really? No one else in history's done it. Hey, I'm just on that, though, I, I want to know... Yeah. Seven world titles, six on the trot. No one's ever done it. Thank you, Jack. That's right, mate. Deep respect. Hey, mate, I, I want to know, like, that... that sort of, uh, you know, encouragement. For you as a grommet growing up, uh, you know, on the back of the Brazilian storm, you know, for so long Brazil had all of this talent and, and couldn't quite cut through and then all of a sudden it just went ballistic. And, uh, you know, I want to know what it's like for you to be a part of that, but on the younger side of it where you're, you know, coming up underneath the, the Medinas and the Fieras and, you know, Toledos, just how much energy and belief that gave you? Yeah, I like that part. Um, yeah, Gabriel. <sighs> Gabriel. How big Gabriel. of a how big of a legend is he in Brazil? Like, give us like some sort of scale that we can understand it. The impact of the guy. It's pretty big. Gabriel is like gigantic, like in Brazil. Like, yeah, he's like God. Like the like, he, he would just like he would just like be being Marzias, which is like I think is the like. It's really far from from the airport and like from Rio or like east or south or north, like whatever you go, it's far to get there. And like he would just like stay in his house like on the mountain with like a private beach. I guess like he has part of it and <sighs> Wow. It's a <laughs> Yeah, and like he would just like go surf with his jet ski because Whatever, who needs to paddle, you know? He <laughs> uh, <laughs> sounds like Herbert Hoover. Yeah, yeah, like he would just like, I would just come to Marzia's train with Samuel sometimes and like, 
we would go surf together, me, him, and Gabriel, and he would just like, oh, are you guys gonna surf? And then like, I would just say, yeah, like we're surfing like down in front, and like he, okay, I'll pick you up with my jet ski, and like we go whatever. <laughs> like, and then, yeah, he's pretty big. Um, but the impact that coming through on the back of, you know, that breakthrough, how much did it give you the belief that you could, you know, yeah. challenge for those yeah, I remember. I remember last year when I was going to the challenge series, I was in Marizias as well. And like, he just like looked at me and said like a couple like really motivational like words and just say like, you got this, you, Mateus and like Samuel, you're like, you, you're just like, um, you're, you guys just ready. You, you put so much into it. Like, and not, not just him, like just, like there's so many good guys. Like the the whole Brazilian storm really, really like I feel they really like l look out for our backs and just like always there for us, like <coughs> giving advice or like whatever we need. Like not just Gabriel, but Felipe, Miguel. Like they they are like such incredible guys. Yeah. yeah Howard Hughes was who I was thinking of, not Herbert Hoover. Hoover. <laughs> Howard Hughes just sitting in his little house with his creams and just running down out and no one can see him and going for his surf on his ski and keeping to himself because he's so bloody famous. Mm. How long until they build one of those giant Christ statues in the likeness of Medina? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Sir? Could happen. It could. Hey, Parker, how do we put an end to this Brazilian storm? Oh, oh, what about that? Didn't you guys say it in your podcast at Bells? They need to, like, we need to build a favela out the back and, like... <laughs> <laughs> we need to import some grit. We need a bit yeah, of grit. Yeah, grit, but that was it. We yeah, need it's grit. But the, need to the biggest really problem is the foam pit at the HPC. Get rid of the foam, fill it with gravel, and do airs off the ramp into the fucking gravel! <laughs> <laughs> we need That's some favelas. From. We need some poverty. We need a military dictatorship, and uh, maybe we'll have a few world champions. <laughs> um... <laughs> oh, we've reached a bit of an impasse eh, in uh, conversation, Vaughan. <laughs> Lane, I mean, a lot's made about, uh, you know, the planetary-sized egos and the cartoon characters of the men's tour in the 80s and 90s, but, uh, you know, the women's tour was not short on big personalities either. What was it like coming up underneath, you know, your, your Wendy Bothers... Uh, your, your Frida Zambas, your, your Jody Coopers, you know, what kind of people were these and, you know, what sort of an influence did they have on you? It was pretty frightening, actually. They were really dominant and they were really strong and they were a force to be reckoned with. So that's where I thought, well, I'm just going to attach myself to one of them and see if I can become just like them. So then I toured with Wendy and, and uh, I toured a little bit with Lisa and I just learnt as much as I could from them. But there's one thing I love to say to kids today is don't have heroes. And the reason I say that is because if you have a hero, you're elevating someone above you. And I never wanted to feel like I was below them. I just wanted to learn as much as I could from them and I wanted to be better than them. So I had mentors and teachers and counsellors, but I never had heroes because I never wanted to put someone on a pedestal and go, I just want to be like them. Like, I didn't want to be anything like them. Well, <laughs> well, one, one thing you also had a lot of was fucking grit. Yeah, uh, I had a bit of that. Yeah, the grit in spades, Lane. Uh, and 
I mean, talk to us about, like, back in those days, there's no money on the women's tour. You know, you're no. working, like, how many jobs were you working? How, how working, difficult was it? I was it? number two in the world. I was earning $8,000 a year and I was working four different jobs. That was 1995. And then in 1997, I was earning $12,000 a year working two part-time jobs and I was number two in the world again. So, but I won my first world title in 98 uh, and I was earning 35 grand a year. So I was rolling in it by then. Wow. That yeah. is fuck all money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty shit. But hey, you know what? We made it, we made it what it is today. So I was, I was just grateful that we, that we had a governing body that decided to support us in an industry that turned around and then embraced women surfing and then off we went. In the, the, the film Girls Can't Surf came out, we got to sort of see a lot of the, about that generation just before you. Uh, they sort of, f it almost ends where it gets to you and, and it's almost like they make out there's this glory era coming. <laughs> um, but there was, you know, still tough times ahead, as you just said, you know, not a whole lot of coin around. But what was it that fueled your desire to win, uh, especially six years in a row? Like, I mean, far out, that's so psychotic. Like. How loved were you on tour by the other girls, by the, uh, you know, world title number six? By world title number two, I was severely hated. Yeah. yeah by world title number six, I was, a, I was under death threats. You know, they, they were hugging me and sticking knives in my back going, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> they really didn't want to see me win anymore. They were literally hugging me saying, God, how do we beat you? I was like, well, just... Work harder. And, and what's, in, <laughs> what's going on in your mind? Were you just ruthless against them? Were you just going, you know what, Jersey's yeah. on, fucking I'm looking after me, check you later. And did that feel good to have, you know, on one hand, all your best friends, because you were a tight unit, you couldn't do it without each other. No. But then also you have to beat them and you kept beating them. Yes, and they didn't like it. And, uh, and it, you know what, what, the biggest mistake that I made is when I took the jersey off, I maintained that ruthlessness. So I was competitive in and out of the water. And that sabotaged and compromised a lot of the relationships that I had with the girls because they tagged me as having the compassion of a tiger shark. I was literally that ruthless. I was that fiercely driven, that intensely focused. And also what I didn't realise, and not until I won my sixth consecutive world title did I realise this, that every ounce of my self-worth, my identity, every ounce of myself was wrapped up in what I did. And so that meant when I succeeded, I was a success, but when I lost, I was a dismal failure and there was nothing in between. Were, were you lonely? Yeah, really lonely. Yeah. yeah, devastatingly lonely. And that's why when I started dating Ken Bradshaw, anyone know who Ken Bradshaw is? Looks a lot like Buzz, Lee, Buzz Lightyear and behaves like him too. It, ha it helped... <laughs> It helped Buzz having... Lightyear and Chuck Norris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It helped having that impressive wingspan around me, that's for sure. But, you know, Ken, Ken, um, Ken provided me a sanctity of safety and support, and that's what I desperately needed because the minute I started winning, I became a target. And none of my... Like, my competition was so happy for me. I mean, I got two standing ovations in my whole career, and I was never chaired, but I got two standing ovations. The one was when I won my first world title, and the second one was when I w achieved lifetime membership of the A. Hang on, hang on. What about the standing ovation oh, you got when you, you walked up Oh, thank you, and someone today, yes, yes. Not the swelly end! Yes, uh, but, yeah. um, so I know when I won my first world title, all my peers were like, hallelujah, Lane's won, maybe she'll shut up about it now. But Ooh, no, they made a mistake they there, made big, a big time. Mistake, yeah. They <laughs> underestimated me, didn't they? But when I won, I thought I was good enough, and then I thought, no, I'm not enough yet. And then that's what kept me going. I win number two, number three, number four, number five. I wanted to outdo Kelly Slater. 
because he won five in a row and I thought, well, why don't I just go for six? So I did. Fuck, I don't know how I did it, but I did it. <laughs> Paco, uh, just before, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting though, just, just to pause there for a second. Like, we applaud that and it is an incredible feat, Lane. But, you know, in our culture, we're coached to think that, you know, the trophies, the material success, uh, you know, the celebrity, that that's going to that's gonna make you feel whole. It's going to make you feel complete. But, you know, at the end of it all, what did you discover? Well, I discovered that the only one that's going to give me permission to feel like I'm enough is me. And I was looking for that, all of that externally. Like you said, I was looking for the, the validation either from my peers or from my sponsors or from the trophies and the accolades. But I was never extrinsically motivated. I was intrinsically motivated. And that came from the fact that as an eight-year-old, I was told I was adopted. And at that moment in time, I thought I'm undeserving of love. The only way I'm gonna be deserving of love is if I become a world champion. And I got there and I went, I'm still not deserving of love. So I have to become the best of the best. And then I got there, I became the best of the best. And I went, am I deserving of love yet? Am I enough yet? And I went, yeah, okay, I'm good enough now. I'm, I'm comfortable with this. But then that wasn't enough because then I had to come back and win a seventh one. <laughs> no, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's actually just a, a really common story in elite sports, you know, you, you, whether it's, uh, you know, Gabriel Medina, you know, uh, son of a single mother, Mick Fenning, son of a single mother, um, oh, and then, and John, John Florence, son of a single mother, yeah. um, mo you know, whether well, you want I'm the daughter of a single father. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I guess it's, uh, you know, I guess that, that trauma plays a role in greatness, but it, it, it's not the solution to no. the trauma, is it? No, no, and, and you'll see that the, you know, the, the greatest or the most successful people in the world and also the biggest misfits have come from the same circumstances, but it's just our perception of it skews our reality. And I, I utilise to, pro to propel me onto the world stage of professional surfing in an, at a time where women's surfing lost it, its identity, didn't have any support, really wasn't a structured or a supportive environment for women to be a part of. And I just went, this is where I'm gonna make it and this is where I'm gonna prove myself. And essentially all I was seeking was self-love and self-validation, but I kept looking for it outside of me before I started to see it within me. And then that's what fueled me to keep going after it. It was a desire, it was a deep burning desire. So what I often say is, look, I'm a seven times world champion. I won six in a row, but five of them are one in state of fear and only two of them are one in state of love. And that was number one and number seven. Wow. They were really joyful world titles. Fuck, that's so, uh... Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess it's a... Uh, Another reality of, of living in that competitive mindset, um, especially when it bleeds into your everyday life, what that essentially means is you're getting through life in a heightened state, you know, your, your central nervous system is flooded with cortisol, there's this stress, this anxiety, this fear, and um, as we know, the, the body keeps the score, and at a certain point, you buckle. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of beauty in that, that hitting rock bottom, uh, if you survive it, a lot of people don't. Um, but yeah. can you talk to us about, you know, what that moment was and uh, how you survived it, what the road back looked like. There, there were a couple. Did you want to ask a question? No? Okay. So there, okay. there were a couple of rock bottom moments. In 1995, because I set the goal to become a world champion in the first five years on tour and I came runner up to the world title in 1995 and I saw that as a dismal failure and I wanted to quit. And then fortunately either one of my coaches or friends you know, talked me out of it, dusted me off and pushed me back out into the world. And then in that same, in the next year, in 1996, I came down with chronic fatigue syndrome for the second time. And in 1996, there was 
there was very little understanding of what chronic fatigue syndrome was, so it was called yuppies disease back then. Yeah, so much compassion. Yeah, chronic fatigue or cosmic fatigue, cosmic some call Cosmic fatigue, yeah, yeah, get up, you lazy It's bastard. the moons. Yeah, you yeah, it must be your cycle. So uh, I, was, um, I was in a really bad way. I, w I found myself in a really dark, depressed state because I didn't understand what was going on. Mentally, I was foggy. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't remember things. I was uh, performing really inconsistently. I had um, a whole lot of other physical things, but... It was all kind of intrinsic. It wasn't, so you couldn't see anything wrong with me, but internally my body and my mind had completely broken down. And because I had zero compassion for it, I would start beating myself up to beat anyone else to the punch, to the point where I ended up with, with depression and then had suicidal tendencies and then woke up every day thinking of different ways to end my life. That was my rock bottom moment for that particular period in time. And that's when I had to have, I had a choice to make. I either kill myself or I, ring up a friend and ask for help. And I phoned a friend. And, um, and when I phoned that friend, her response to my call was, what took you so long? So people outside of us can see things aren't going well, but until we have the capacity and the courage to recognise that things aren't okay, then we will never have the courage to do something about it. So I hit that rock bottom and it was a really disconcerting place to find myself. And I thought, okay, I don't like being here. I need to do something about this. And so then I asked for help and then it was the long road back. And so through 1996, I finished third in the world. And then in 1997, I finished second in the world. And once again, I went back into a depression because I just didn't achieve my goal. And then that's when uh, I had to get out of my own way and start all over again. Yeah, that's a rattling story. I mean, it's classic PTSD, right? Like, yeah. and it's it's just the body, uh, the body just hemorrhaging with with stress, too much built up stress, and it, it eventually makes you sick in a multitude of ways and manifesting chronic fatigue. You know, I, I look at Pauline Mensah. You know, she had uh, this kind of chronic arthritis. Her father was killed uh, doing his taxi rounds when she was five years old. She was one of four to a single mother. I look at that as an illness of stress. Um, don't know if she agrees with that, but. Yep. Um, I mean, talk to us about the road back because it's a place that a lot of people reach in life uh, and there is a, a lack of understanding. I've been there myself and, um, you know, it, it, the, the information isn't readily available no. to people. It, it's fucking scattered around. And, and it's know, really conflicting. It's so conflicting and if you yeah. go to your GP, they'll just fucking give you a, a packet of antidepressants like me, uh, Mentos or whatever. <laughs> Um, and that doesn't that doesn't help, and then no. um, so you're in even more of a hole. But yeah. talk to us about some of the methods, you know, for getting back on your feet and, and dealing with the pain. Well, with chronic fatigue, I, I went through the natural route. So I went off. I went. I, I basically had to stop taking or consuming anything that was inflammatory. So that meant no alcohol, no sugar, no red meat, nothing with yeast, gluten, or dairy. You're probably thinking, what the hell does she eat? <laughs> Not much. And it the would paleo diet, the keto diet, yeah, these, oh, all those these diets. are This was in 1997. No one knew what gluten-free was. And, uh, and so it, just, it was basically a process of elimination. But what it taught me to do was actually fall in love with process and detach from outcome. And that's how I won my first world title. So when I came out of the water in Lacanau, having been announced as the, of the champion de monde de surf, which in French is the champion of the world of surfing, I didn't know they were talking about me. I thought they were talking about somebody else because I was that committed to just following the process and doing what I had to do to be better every day because that's what the process I followed to become well again to surf. I was just looking at what do I need to do today to be better tomorrow. 
And it really became a really simplified process and that's what enabled me to become world champion in the first year because I was more committed to focusing on my equipment, my fins, my nutrition, my, my training, my mental state, my physical state, my emotional state. So I became my own accountability partner and that's what helped me overcome my challenges and then hold myself accountable to become the best in the world as often as I did. Fucking incredible, man. Thank you. I love it too. I think one of the, the real legacies of your, your career, and, and, and just not your career, but your, your presence as a public figure, is, is your, your honesty, your accountability, your culpability, you know, putting your hand up when you, you know you've you know, treated people poorly, whether it be competitors or you've, you've acted uh, you know, obnoxiously. But competitors, sponsors, <laughs> yeah. everybody, yeah. But it's, but, you know, also that, that, that fierce kind of, that, that stroke of fearsomeness, you know, that's also what survives you through physical assaults, uh, you know, and metropolitan beach breaks and blazing a trail for uh, women's pro surfing. Like, none of this shit would exist if it wasn't for you. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's your blessing and your curse, isn't it? Actually, because it's what really drove me to start the Beachley Classic, which is the richest um, women's surfing event in the world. I wanted to take women's surfing away from the industry and, and the men, and I wanted it to stand on its own two feet and find its own presence in the world. And I also wanted to invite the youngest, hottest, up-and-coming junior young surfers. So I wanted to invite the top 12 under 15, under 16-year-olds to come and compete. And the first year I invited Steph Gilmore. Like, fuck, what was I thinking? Because she beat me in the final of my own event. And then the third year I invited Tyler Wright. And I handed a 14-year-old 20 grand US and sent her back to high school. It's like, what am I doing? I'm just compromising my own success here. But, but essentially that's, I was, I was laying down the platform and, the, and the, the pathway for the future generation. And the lesson that I've learned that if, if you really want to leave a legacy, have the courage to plant a seed and water a tree that you may one day never have the opportunity to sit under. Yeah, mate, yeah. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> the hallmark is the honesty, but the, you know, the other hallmark is, is the generosity and giving back and making sure that there's a future for the next generation. And, uh, you know, you just continue to do that. Uh, obviously, first chair of Surfing Australia, of, of 50 odd year old organisation that's just been run by men the entire time. So I just wanted to take it back to something you said before, your identity wrapped up in winning, uh, the, what you were looking for, the happiness. Like for you, Joel, it was an identity wrapped up in coming second a lot of the time. Like, <laughs> did winning that world title... No, no, no. Seriously, like a fuck. When it was right there and the cherry was there and, and, and you got injured, you had to let go of it. Like, was your identity and your narrative starting to get wrapped up in, fuck, am I not going to do it? And when you did it, did you find happiness? Um, I think so. Um, I, I've, I was going to be the most losing surfer in history at one point. Um, <laughs> if I had lost my world title to Kelly, I would have had five runner-ups. Um, so so, and we all saw what that did to Shane Haran, mate. So, um. yeah. Gary Elkert had a couple too, but, uh, yeah... It did change. No, definitely. When I got the one that I wanted to, you know, like I didn't get seven or 11 or whatever, but um, I got one. Um, and that's, it, it definitely has, um, definitely made it a sweet after getting so many seconds. It, I felt so satisfied um, that I didn't really care after that with my career. I, I mean, I did care, but I just was, I was so focused on getting one and I tried my hardest. 
And what did you have to compromise in order to win that one? And do you feel like you could have won more if you were willing to compromise on, you know, just, you know, you're such a, a salt-of-the-earth guy. You're a very uh, pure guy. You love your mates. You love having a couple of beers. Um, do you feel like that might have cost you world titles, not being hard-nosed and bloodthirsty? Yeah, definitely. But I was never... I was. I wanted to give up sur- uh, give up competitive surfing the year before. I was 2011, I was in the New York event and I was like, I fucking hate competing. I was even, when I used to travel with Rasta when I was really young, I wanted to go with Rasta and, and be a free surfer. I didn't have, I felt like I was over competition. Um, and then I'd, I'd go through hills and valleys of, of liking it and not liking it. It was really easy to tell when, I'm, when I was enjoying competition, I was getting results and then I'd just have, I'd lose interest. Um, I don't know why. I had times where I wanted to just give up, and I'd had, I'd never knew what bring it on and didn't bring it on. Um, but yeah, six months before I started my world title year, I was just ready to throw it in and go free surfing. And um, it was not that I fell out of love with surfing, but the competing was the one I fell out of love with a few times. And what did it take to win the world title? Like, what were the big sacrifices? You know, did it take a serious mental, emotional, spiritual toll on you to get to the top? More so that I just, I honestly, I just got to a point where I didn't give a fuck. Remember Kelly Slater letting go? The, remember he did a big thing called letting go? And I remember just, I just let go and went, we'll see what happens here. I'm just going to throw everything I have at it. And then um, I, I almost let go of caring about the result. And it, uh, it came my way. And it was a fucking magic day for Australian surfing, my friend. I think we might throw it open to you guys now because we, we'll, we'll let it really roll with the swell-ins. Uh, let's roll the intro and we'll, let's get some insights from you guys and what you want to know from this amazing panel. Hey. We got a brand new uh, graphene billabong wedding for the best question. I think you guys can decide who's going to win it. Start here. Name and uh, question, mate. Pete. Uh, yeah. Uh, question for Parco. Um, hey, mate. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, was that true about your ankle and no punts? Because I broke my ankle last year and it's causing a lot of, tr- lot of dramas, eh? And you want to keep doing airs, hey, Pete? True. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Good question. A little bit dry, but I have a couple of golden cone pieces. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. When I, I did a, I was in Bali and I did an air at Chungu and I snapped my uh, syndesmosis thing and um, I, I, I landed the air and I couldn't get off my board with a snapped one and I was trying to find a way to fall and um, yeah, from that moment on, I, and that stopped me, I was really far in the lead for a thing then and um, I didn't, didn't end up winning that year so I, um, it just, I don't know, from that moment on I was like, stuff that, you know. If I had to do it, I'd do it in competition, but oh, then I just wasn't... Actually, I just don't think I was that good at them either, so... I, uh, Have you I not just watched Bicycle recently, mate? It's, mate, that was an ear-defining punt. That thing was fucked up. I've always bicycle. said God gave me two things, a big nose and a cut back, and I'll stick with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And it is one of the world's best cut oh, backs too, by the way. <laughs> it's one of the world's best noses as well. Pretty Chris Week, if you ask me. Uh, Chris from Coleroy Beach. Um, yeah, probably a question to both Lane and um, and Joel. And probably Drow as well. If I, apologies if I pronounced your name wrong there. Oh, right. good. Um, He's used to it. It's all good, man. <laughs> okay, being an Australian, um, yeah, probably don't get Portuguese names right, Brazilian names right. But anyway, um, surf, surfing the last probably 10 years, we've had sports betting coming in, 
quite significantly and probably recently even more so. I think uh, betting in sport has just become massive in this country. It particularly, you know, you're seeing like guys like, you know, Nathan Cleary running around with a, you know, sports bet tag on the back of his shorts. Do you ever think we could see a surfer with that, you know, on their, on their name of their board or whatever else? Or do you reckon we could have a Ladbrokes Pro um, Bells Beach or something like that, I don't know. It's a good question, but I mean, get on Ned's, mate. mate. That's who's back in the program. Uh, um, mate, your, uh, your question's amazing because when, at, uh, when we're on tour, at one point um, when sports gambling came in, they, we had a choice to make a good money. Uh, to, they were going to sponsor some of the tour. And because in, there's other countries where they don't have sports betting, um, and I remember there were a couple of uh, quite religious brothers, twins, that um, were on the tour at the time that you might know of, heard of, um, were really against it. And so I, we all kind of backed out. Myself, I was like, oh, mate, you can't. It's against their religion, and so we, um, we didn't do it. But there, they were, uh, there was a chance to, to do it. It's a funny thing about those kind of right-wing Christians in the States, isn't it? They're really anti-gambling, but fully fine with machine guns and uh, heaps of pharmaceutical drugs. <laughs> Get back on protection, you mark. Name's Remy from uh, Motorvale. This one's for Parco. Uh, after that viral TikTok YouTube video of being labelled an old man, will be this be your turning point to take on Bainey for gamote status? Uh, <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> yeah. Um, fuck, I don't know, mate. That was a pretty heck. That was the night after I got my car stolen and went through that crap. And they, uh, the true story to that is, um, so they'd been, those guys, gaslighting, and they had all their number plates all taped up, so they don't want people to know who they were. And they hassled an old local legend on the hill, so I went over and confronted them. And uh, then they shopped their story around for a week, trying to sell it to the news to make 500 bucks. And I, uh, you know, that's kind of what people do, and I got the fucking lickings for it. Took them sweet. Yep, no worries. But yeah, they uh, they were little. Hey mate, as soon as you turn forty, you're allowed to scream at any fucking kid <laughs> without guilt, without oh. repercussion. Um, also, can I bring this up? It's someone's birthday in a couple of days. It's turning a big number. Oh! Yeah, I'm fifty in two days. Thank you very much. Raise the bat. Great innings. Uh, g'day, uh, uh, 50 years young to Lane. Happy birthday, Lane, in a couple of days. Thank you very much. Uh, this question is uh, focused to Paco. Paco, uh, we saw a video of uh, your cousin Mitch uh, dogging you uh, at a snapper, snaking your board and taking you down the line. I was just curious of whether you've got him back yet or not. <laughs> Good yeah, question. Fuck, great question. Well, one thing I learned... <laughs> is you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family, so fuck <laughs> that little prick. <laughs> no, it wasn't too bad, he's a good, he's, you know what, he's done it to me actually a couple of times, so it was just someone filmed it. Pretty pissed week if you ask me. Hey there, this might be more for Joel and Lane, but you know, winning world titles and being young hot pro surfers, especially back in the time before Instagram and access to celebrity, you guys were often treated like absolute rock stars and get afforded some amazing opportunities. And I just wondered if you wanted to share any spicy scandal-like things with this room only that you got the opportunity to do. <laughs> and uh, we can cut anything that's potentially, uh, you know, defamatory or whatever, so... 
It won't go public. Good question. My husband's in the room. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm... <laughs> All I can say is thank God there wasn't social media when we were coming through. That's okay. What would we have seen if there was, though, Wayne? <laughs> oh, yes, I did make out with Vaughn Blakey. Yes! <laughs> Party pass extraordinaire. But you know what? You know what he may not have told you? Is that my drinks were spiked before it happened. Ah, typical, oh. typical. Hey, whoa, hey, hey. Not, uh, not my <laughs> style. Spiked at one of Morris's teddy bear's picnics, I believe. No, it wasn't by you, Vaughn. Hey. This is a question for, for Lane. We, we've heard a lot, obviously, about your time as an elite athlete and competition and uh, how intense that all was. But now that's behind you and you think about surfing today, what's, what's surfing mean for you now? Great oh, question, geez, that's deep. That's some Oprah shit. Have a couple cone pieces, mate. <laughs> and what's your name, mate? Nick. On your Nick. So, Lane, what's what's your relationship like with surfing now? Is it uh, as joyful and uh, you know? Surfing today for me is more joyful than it's ever been. The ocean is my liquid valium. It's where I go to heal my hurts, process my pains, and then connect with the utmost amount of joy and freedom that I can ever experience. So. If I'm grumpy, Kirk makes me shut my computer down and go surfing. It's, um, it's definitely, it's a non-negotiable. And the best advice I was ever given when I retired was Bruce Raymond, who, former CEO of Quicksilver, said to me, make sure you schedule your calendar to the surf forecast. And so these days, I, uh, I still get in the water every single day, and I'm so grateful I still can. Yeah, Lane. And uh, if you've got any of that liquid Valium, I'll have some after the show. Thank you very much. Dude, you go on a Bali. Valium, Valium, Sudo, Sudo. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Hope you get the lot, you dog. I was going to be for Wayne, but is that all right? Yeah, I'll take right. it. Yeah. Nick, um, Lane, you mentioned that guys like Barton Lynch were mentors for you. Just wanted to know what kind of characteristics they had that allowed you to be who you were and who we... You know, because we've all got grommets in our lives. How, how do we... You know, what characteristics help help them? You're throwing... You're about to throw some corn. Yeah, I'm basically throwing my shoulder out. But that was such a good question. <laughs> I'm willing to do it that again. That is a good question. How do we encourage the youth without sort of getting the soccer dad or soccer mum whistle out? Yeah, that's a really good question. And look, the, the youth of today are very different. They see the world very differently to the way we see it. I, I often say my dad gave me the best upbringing because he gave me the freedom to fail. He gave me the freedom to explore, the freedom to set really lofty goals, but he also made sure that I had the work ethic to follow it up. Today, there's a lot of soccer parents and helicopter parents and, you know, Carissa Moore's dad paddling out on one of her boards to block for her. And, like, there's a lot of intensity around kids today. Hey, it works, hey? Carissa's a five-times world champion. I'm not criticising it. I'm just highlighting No, 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 it's all good. I know oh. which section of the uh, whole podcast I'll be putting out on social media tomorrow. <laughs> Get the clicks. I, all, all I say is um, just give them the opportunity and see what they're going to make of it. I think if we put too much pressure and expectation on our, on our kids to be something that they don't want to be, then they might rebel and go against it. But uh, do you want your kids to be world champions? Um, if they want to be, they can be. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm yes. happy to do what they ever want to do. Just yeah. support them. And do they want to be world champions? Um, no. not my, my son thinks he's going to be a rugby league player and I watched him play last week I was like mate you got a lot of work to do 
I was going to say, mate, I know you want to let your kids uh, be free range, but if there was one bit of advice I could give you, don't let them play rugby league, mate. It's not good for the old lemon spread. Smithy can tell you that. <laughs> wow. So one of the characters. He's a little bit bigger than you already. He's 11. <laughs> that helps. That helps. But uh, I'm sure he's not going to be bigger than Finial Mucka Mucka and uh, Albie Tawira and the boys. One of the characteristics they did have is just encouragement. That's all I needed, just that level of encouragement to let them, to, just to know that you belong out there and, uh, and they're willing to support you wholeheartedly. Hey. Dog. Oh, sorry. I've got a couple of the storm over here. The storm, oh, not the that Brazilian crappy storm. Melbourne storm, but the Brazilian storm. Up the boys. What would you like to know from the panel? Bruno, can I ask Matthias a question, please? Go for it, Parker. Um, so, <laughs> Matthias. My yeah. last year on tour, we had the final at Halieva together. Yeah. You were 18, I was 38, I was, right? I was 17. 17. <laughs> ah. Well, there's my answer. <laughs> I was going to ask you how... I was so scared the when, how good you were surfing leading up. When I paddled out for that final, I was like, this kid is gonna fucking Thank kill you. me. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, and I looked at you and I was hoping, I was trying to see your face, just hopefully you were just as scared that you were going to get beaten by an old guy. And you weren't. You were just like, I, don't know where. I was like, I fucking remember being a wild card like that. So um, um, I just want to say it was an honour to surf that no, final with you me, too, man. For me, oh, thank you. What a the whole event for me, I think, was the event that like, most of the surfing world... Um, you know, like, that's uh, so hard to put into words in my second language right now, but uh, I remember when I saw you before the final, and uh, I think for me, not just for me, but for all of us, you and Mick and Andy, you all, like, you know, Hollywood stars, like, I, I remember I saw you, and then, I don't know, you were just so happy, and you're, you talked to me, you were like, oh, you, you want to qualify this year, something like that? So I was just feeling... <laughs> No, but like in a good way, like let's let's do this. Yeah, I'm sorry, but you like, oh, you want to qualify? Like, let's do this before the final. And usually, like in Brazilians, we don't talk before the final at all. Like, we're just really serious. And then the way you know, I saw you there, um, really happy. It was probably it was a, you was your last year, right? It was your, yeah, last event you won. So for me, it was just so special. And uh, I was, yeah, like, I remember in that heat, you took all the ways that I wanted it. Like, <laughs> like. <laughs> Welcome to Snapper Rocks, bro. <laughs> yeah, so, but it was amazing. I, I got second. I was so happy that, you know, you finished your career that way. I, I wish I have, you know, this career. That it's, uh, it's, you know, you, you had the dream that I, I wanted to have for me, you know, now you have kids and everything. and. You're such a legend. I, I never talked to you about it, but I'm, you know, you're my idol since I was young. So. I love that, man. For that heart I love that. Code piece is all. Pretty quick break, if you ask me. Yeah, my name's Neil. Uh, this one is also for Paco. How the hell did you navigate your jet ski through the floods? Like, did you just follow, follow the main roads, or what did you do? Um, yeah. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, because I, 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 you go up there a bit, so I knew I knew a few spots. Um, by the afternoon, I was following power lines because if there was power going to a house, I just was following power lines because it was uh, the roads were all under. Hey. 
All right, this one's for Parker. Um, as we're coming into the back end of the season, we see the J-Bay comp coming up. If they offered you a wildcard position, would you take it? Oh, wetsuit winner! Wetsuit winner! Chuck him the suit, Smithy. Chuck him the suit. Um, <laughs> uh, you know what? Watching Bells and watching Mick, I kind of had a little bit of a tickle. Um, but honestly, I, f I absolutely... I love my surfing at the moment. I'm frothing on it. I really enjoy it. After I finished, I had a bit of a... I didn't surf a lot right after I finished. I had a bit of a, I guess you'd say, like a surfing hangover. Now I'm loving it and I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to go back to three to the beach and all that shit. And so... It's only two now, man. Fuck, it's two, hey, that's right. <laughs> and that's priority. I, 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 I don't think so. And every time I think about it, I think about, like, I would hate for me to steal a spot from if we had an Australian like Mateus or... You know, if we had someone that could take the spot, or let's give it to someone who really wants it. I've been lucky enough to do it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm happy. And before we wrap, Parker, we'd love to see you back at J-Bay. Smithy still starts frothing at the mouth just at the thought of it because he was there when you took it out. But Lane, Kiala Kennelly is on the Challenger Series. Like, are you thinking about pulling the rashi on? Maybe taking on J-Bay, Sunset Beach, the Queen of Sunset. Come on. No. <laughs> like Paco, I'm frothing on my surfing. And plus, if you put me up against someone like Carissa or Steph or Sally, I'll look like I'm going backwards in slow motion. So I love, I love where women's surfing is today. I know I've played my part in, in creating that platform. I don't need to go and make any comebacks to validate myself. I'm just stoked that I was a part of it for as long as I was. Oh, we're so grateful. You are such a legend. Lane Beachley, Joel Parkinson, Joel Chambino, Bianca. Oh, yeah.